Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Today, I just wanted to pause a little bit for thought and dwell on some of the topics that we've covered so far. And I thought what I'd do is add a little bit of practical application to the topics or themes of uh, residential mortgages, cash, buy-to-let mortgages and indeed bridging finance in order to get you thinking on uh, on how some of these more common financing methods could operate in your property business, perhaps in some ways that you'd not really considered. So let's not dwell, and let's get straight into the practical right now then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. So far in this third series, we've covered residential mortgages, uh, cash, buy-to-let, commercial mortgages, and indeed bridging finance. Today, what I plan to do is share some practical applications, which are based mostly from my own experience for you to consider. So let's start with our residential mortgage then. Um, Earlier in the series, I I talked about using our home as an asset in our property investment business. And it's a subject I've covered once or twice before in the past. And we can, of course, leverage our home in a number of different ways, some of which I've done personally and will share with you in today's show. First, something I've not actually done though myself, is consent to let. I mentioned considering using a consent to let arrangement with our residential mortgage lender instead of converting our home loan to a buy to let mortgage instead. For example, if we wanted to rent it out and uh, and then go and buy another property to live in ourselves. And that's a good way to get going should we want to follow a rental strategy. Consent to let can often be obtained on better terms than a buy to let mortgage. So it's definitely worth investigating before deciding to sell our home. And this can also present us with some interesting tax benefits, as I also mentioned previously. Most notably, lettings relief and an element of capital gains tax relief on any profit on a subsequent sale are two of the main tax benefits from adopting this type of thinking, uh, switching from a residential mortgage to renting out, but not not for a buy-to-let mortgage using consent to let. Personally, though, I have taken in lodgers into my home to convert a potential liability into an asset. And if you remember, Robert Kiyosaki, among other people, defines an asset as something that puts money into our pocket each and every month. A home will not do that unless we can produce a rental income, of course. So on a couple of occasions, I've, I've rented out rooms in my, in my home for rent and uh, retained all of that rental income tax-free, as those are the rules set down by HMRC. The current annual rent that you can receive, or any of us can receive, tax-free is £7,500 per year. So it's now a very generous tax-free allowance, even if it does mean sharing a part of our home um, in doing so. A simple lodger agreement or a license is all that we need to protect uh, protect us. And don't worry, there, there's not the same sort of rigmarole to go through if we need to evict a lodger as we would if we had to evict a tenant. So um, in other words, we've got more rights really than we would do uh, in a more arm's length uh, tenancy arrangement through buy to let. 
Over the years, I've taken in a Monday to Friday lodger who worked away from home during the week before going home at weekends, and that that neatly kept the room available for friends and family visits as well at weekends uh, when he was away. But I've also had a permanent lodger renting uh, a room at home, and the ones that uh, I've had have tended not to stay too long, as they're often in transit for some reason or other, uh, such as moving home, changing job, in in some sort of relationship change, and, and so on. And finally, I've also had a holiday home, which is rented out via the holiday rental portals, including Airbnb, Airbnb rather, to provide additional income to support the costs of owning this uh, this personal property. So whether it's uh, long-term tenants using a consent-to-let um, arrangement, lodgers on a licensing arrangement, or short-stay guests using holiday rental sites like Airbnb, there's a number of legitimate ways to leverage our residential mortgage as a tax-efficient rental investment, at least in part. But always make sure we have the correct lender permissions and understand the insurance risks as well, whilst checking the income disclosure rules of HMRC before blindly following any of these options and, and getting a little bit stuck. Finally, we can also use a residential mortgage to realise a, a tax-free capital gain under the right conditions as well. So again, in another personal example, I, I bought a property, a property below market value, lived in it for a year or so, and then sold it on at a profit. Clearly, renting, uh, sorry, clearly without renting it out, uh, my investment return would have been uh, more limited to the capital growth on the property. But as the full gain was uh, capital gains tax-free, being my home, the after-tax position of doing this was compelling when compared to some alternative investment projects that I could have undertaken with the same funds instead. It's something I've undertaken a couple of times now, and um, here's an example of some of the headline numbers to illustrate the point. Um, a house, uh, per, the property uh, I'm thinking about rather, um, cost £165,000, and uh, there are additional costs throughout the, the period of ownership of about £9,000. I used a, a mortgage, a residential mortgage, so the deposit was around about £25,000, or around about 15%. Obviously, it's more advantageous than a buy-to-let loan in that respect. And therefore, my total cash investment was around about £34,000. I subsequently sold this property around about a year, just over a year, for £186,000. So the profit on sale was £12,000. Admittedly, not a huge sum, but, in, but it was indeed tax-free. And um, when I looked at my cash input, that represented a return on investment from a cash point of view of 35%. So that was actually quite appealing if you look at it that way. Had I, of course, also taken on a lodger or something similar to that, the results would, of course, been a lot better. There's an obvious flaw in this idea, and, and that is that we are, we're dealing with our home. And we'll need to either reinvest some of our, our profit into a new home or switch to renting instead if we wanted to retain all of that profit. An alternative is to use this concept to climb the property ladder, adding value into a property before extracting it and reinvesting it in a larger property as we go. However, these practical applications to turning our home into a property development might not suit all of us, and especially if you've got a partner or a family who might not like that idea of uh, um, treating treating our home as, a, as, a, as an investment uh, property. Uh, I know my wife sometimes complains when I start thinking along these lines. The other potential downside is that it could be interpreted as gaming the tax system by HMRC, and so it's not something to repeat too frequently. 
In my own case, it suited my lifestyle to have a relatively short you know, time living in this property after changing my personal circumstances. And so it was opportune to have an eye on the investment side of things whilst doing so. But it's not something I plan to repeat too often. For a start, you know, changing home every year is uh, is not very practical, really. And um, as I say, HMRC wouldn't probably look at that too kindly if it was uh, repeated too often. So that was that. And uh, the next area I really wanted to, to talk about and dive into a little bit more was the idea of uh, of cash. So let's look at a, a couple of real examples where I have uh, expressly decided to use cash as a means to fund a property investment instead of financing. So I'm a firm believer, as you might have gathered, in leverage. Uh, so that's the idea of using other people's money, such as a bank's, in order to grow my effective return on personal cash investment. However, there are some occasions where the benefits of cash have trumped the use of finance. For example, I have uh, agreed on a transaction uh, a couple of years ago, just before Christmas, which is a quiet time in the property market, generally speaking. In this situation, the vendor had had two previous sales uh, agreed on their property and were looking to see a quick return of funds on a, uh, in a distinctly quiet uh, period of the year. Being a cash buyer in this situation, I was, I was not only able to secure a discount of around about 18% from the uh, comparable property, uh, property values locally, but was also able to knock out uh, some of the first-time buyer competition, who all required a mortgage, of course. And of course, these were the same types of buyer that caused the previous sales to collapse in in the first place. You, you, it might not be obvious, but um, there was some sort of hold up or they didn't like uh, some aspect of the property. And um, maybe it just caused them to go back and renegotiate, took too long, couldn't get the mortgage in place, etc., etc. So I was able to take advantage of that fact is what the point I'm making by using cash. Speed and simplicity were key ingredients to securing a, an attractive level of discount on a deal I, I found just from a local estate agent with very little work involved on my part. And the previous mortgage-backed purchases also gave me some, some leverage, if you like, in the negotiation. So that was one example. But quite recently, I've also been involved in a couple of flip uh, transactions, uh, trading transactions, property trading transactions, which were, were closed in cash. And once again, speed was the most important criteria in uh, securing the deal with the vendor, with the, sorry, at least in the vendor's mind. However, in addition, let me illustrate how using cash can also help improve the returns on some of those lower value transactions I hinted at in, uh, in the previous episode. So here's an actual example of a property that's uh, recently been involved with purchase through cash. The property purchase price is £72,000. The improvement works, uh, along with all the fees involved, around about £35,000. So there's holding costs, improvement works, there's uh, a bunch of fees, etc. involved there. So around about 35000 So therefore, the total cash investment is in the order of around about £107,000. The end valuation uh, in this particular project is not yet complete, but the end valuation is estimated to be about 125,000. Could rise, but let's just leave it at that for now. That's the estimate, 125,000. That being the case, that would uh, produce a, a net profit on this uh, particular transaction of 18,000 pounds, or a return on investment percentage of 16.8%. However, if we were to look at the same transaction using bridging finance, and indeed we did as part of our evaluation, it's exactly the same, apart from, obviously, there's some increased costs resulting from the bridging finance arrangement, 
and the associated costs that go along with that. And the uh, the, the costs of uh, bridging finance are estimated around about £7,600. So in this case, the total cash investment would be lower because obviously we'd have to just put a deposit in rather than fund the whole purchase price, but we'd have the extra financing fees as well. So the total cash investment is 64200 And uh, the net profit resulting would drop to 10400 but the return on investment would stack up pretty much similarly at 16.2%. So a little bit of swings and roundabouts, less money in, same sort of percentage, more or less return out, but much less cash uh, return out um, as well. So as I highlighted in a previous episode uh, a couple of weeks ago, often the lower value property projects can uh, can lose a significant chunk of profit once all of those finance fees are taken into consideration, especially when some of these fees are not directly proportional to the purchase price. And in this example, for example, the um, you, usually with bridging finance, as we, we discuss, we also have to cover the lender's legal fees as well as our own legal fees. And that's an example where the um, the costs are not proportional. It's usually just a fixed fee. Uh, it could vary slightly uh, depending on the value of the project, but normally it's a fixed fee. So that can be pretty you know, painful at the lower, uh, lower value range, uh, range of purchase price. Now, granted, in this example, you could argue that with a similar return on investment, that we should still use the bridging finance option, as we could, in effect, undertake nearly two projects of a similar value simultaneously and generate a higher overall cash return. So that's around about 20k instead of about 18k, similar amount of cash investment. Okay, yes, we need to put a little bit extra in at front, but um, by blending the two, the two projects route, but you, you get the drift. However, prop property projects are often not as predictable as we would like, and so a more certain 18k is probably a better bet than a less certain 20k, just in case we, we hit a delay and one or both of those projects, and of course that would result in increased cost of financing as well as you might, uh, as you might gather. Therefore, my conclusion really is that these lower purchase price levels, we often find that cash still offers a cost-effective return whilst carrying less finance risk, as I like to call it, with it. Finance risk really is the associated cost of uh, delaying a project and having interest costs, maybe hitting a penalty rate or, or even some worse or adverse effects. So I am a fan of bridging finance, but sometimes uh, cash is still king. And I think that illustrates quite well how cash can still be an effective financing tool in very practical terms. It has uh, less external interference, more speed, higher perceived buyer status, and at the lower end of the scale, similar returns from a percentage point of view, but with less financing risk issues as well. So next up, Buy-to-let mortgages. Now, in all honesty, buy-to-let mortgages are pretty boring, in all honesty. <laughs> in the past, many, many property investors would have uh, taken out a vanilla buy-to-let loan, and so we'll be fairly familiar with them. A practical variation, however, when you know looking forward, might be a commercial buy-to-let mortgage, should we decide to acquire investment properties through a company to avoid some of the tax restrictions of investing in our personal names. That twist aside, they're broadly similar offerings, so that is buy-to-let mortgage and a commercial mortgage, uh, at least for the purposes of this discussion here. Granted, there's a couple of interesting variations on, on the market right now in terms of buy-to-let loans, such as a light refurbishment or a heavy refurbishment buy-to-let mortgage. And this is where there's a further advance that can be drawn down after improvement works have been undertaken on a property. 
Now, I've not personally undertaken one of these further advanced type of uh, light or heavy refurbishment loans, um, so I can't share a practical application of these with you here. The main reason why I haven't pursued these uh, types of refurbishment loan to date is that, to be honest with you, I've found better ways to recycle my cash, uh, which you know releases more money than um, you know, and, and that's one of my my personal investment drivers. So I've tended to move away from those, but I think it's interesting and definitely worth considering as a practical application these sort of uh, light and heavy refurbishment buy-to-let loans. However, one neat practical application of using buy-to-let mortgage that I can suggest you look at is when it comes to renewing an existing buy-to-let mortgage. For example, when the fixed rate period comes to an end or if you're just considering remortgaging for, you know, because you're not tied in at that particular point in time. Um, over the past year or so, I've had the initial fixed rate uh, interest rate term come to an end on, on several buy-to-let mortgages. And in each case, this is kind of what happened. The, the broker that I used approached me and suggested a remortgage on a better rate with a new lender. And this would have saved me some money on the monthly payments for sure, uh, at least compared to the standard variable rate reversion, uh, reversion rate with my existing lender. However, the level of fees involved would make this like this savings, you know, highly questionable in reality, uh, especially if renewing on a short-term uh, basis, like a two-year period and sometimes even a three-year period. You know, the extra fees involved would, would counterweight some to some extent some of the savings that could be made. So, I, you know, I think there must be some sort of secret code though between lenders and introducers, because um, in each of the last three renewals that I was involved with, at least, the following sequence took place. Around about three months before the fixed rate expiry, my broker would contact me and suggest an alternative mortgage rate, probably with a new lender. And the result would be a new application, which apart from being a bit of a hassle, also involved a new set of fees for the broker, new lender fees, and possibly even a solicitor to handle the remortgage as well. Then, if I waited around about a month before the uh, fixed rate expiry, my existing lender would contact me and offer me a new loyal customer fixed rate renewal. Admittedly, it seems that the new rate from the existing lender was not always quite as attractive as the new best rate from the new lender proposed by the, my by, excuse me proposed by my broker, but it was close. In addition to the rate being close, however, there were no broker or lender renewal fees to pay and using a solicitor was purely optional as nothing had really changed since the original loan had been put in place. So I guess I learned that waiting for the existing lender to come into play close to the renewal date enabled me to effectively reduce my total cost of financing when compared to switching lender. And it seems that uh, in, in, uh, in the decision to stick or twist, Sticking could actually help beat the bank in this particular occasion. So that's another practical example of how to leverage our buy-to-let mortgage. But here's another one, further advance. I, I have a property in Cornwall, which, um, which I bought and refurbished. And uh, as it happens, I, um, I felt the original value had undercook, undercooked the revaluation post-works. But the, that's a whole other story. However, what I did want to share here was the fact that this lender was open to the idea of providing a further advance on the property after a couple of years uh, based on their current desktop valuation, as they called it. And this further advance would have been on better terms than, than let's say, a remortgage uh, would have been. And, and of course, it would have eliminated a, a complex new application and would have also avoided some potential costs in the process. 
And if I wanted to release additional funds for further portfolio advance, um, excuse me, portfolio expansion, I certainly could have accepted this further advance at a reasonable rate and got a hold of a lump sum close to another deposit on a new property investment as well. Personally, though, uh, I decided against accepting this, uh, to be honest with you, because uh, I just wanted to keep my average portfolio loan to value down at the time. But that doesn't mean that you don't. You have to follow suit. And of course, uh, that might be an option that's open to you uh, to release additional funds for expansion. So, um, so maybe consider that, maybe thinking about a further advance from your existing lender, provided there's enough equity growth that's uh, been uh, achieved in the intervening period, of course. It's a bit cheaper than a remortgage, that's my point. So that's around three different practical applications of how to leverage your buy-to-let loan or a commercial mortgage to uh, reduce your personal cash resources, reduce uh, heavy fees and expand your investment activities in the process. So that brings me neatly on to the final category I wanted to talk about again today, which is bridging finance. Now, Kevin Wright, of course, was our last guest and uh, he made the case for bridging finance pretty well, I think. So I just wanted to share a couple of personal examples where I have applied some of the benefits of bridging, although perhaps in in some less obvious ways. So how about 100% funding of the purchase price, for example? Yeah, I thought that might get your attention. (laughs) Kevin did mention this, actually, when we had a chat, but this was in a different context, I think. Uh, often where we gain gain uh, what's called key access to a property. So that's between uh, exchange and completion on the property. And we go in and we undertake works before the valuer goes in, uh, who, of course, then will go and uh, undertake evaluation once the works have been done, and that will give us an extra boost. And that will allow us to maybe have a slightly higher advance on the bridging loan. And this is certainly a great practical application of uh, shrinking your deposit, as Kevin described it last time out. However, in my own personal case, what I was uh, was securing uh, was a bridging loan, both on the property I was buying, but also on a second property I owned as well. And in my own particular case, the second property was unencumbered, which basically means it had no mortgage on it. So the lender was happy to take a charge on both properties and advance me a loan that allowed me to pay for my full 100% purchase price using their bridging loan. Of course, I needed to provide the the additional security of the second property, but the point being that I didn't have to find any deposit at all to pay on the purchase. And I decided to do this because the level and cost of improvement works on this particular project were quite high. And so having less money tied up in the property by way of a deposit was a a distinct uh, and attractive uh, advantage to me. And it was, uh, it was not one of those low-value purchases that I've been referring to earlier. So the cost of financing did not adversely affect my ROI after financing costs either. So I had a healthy return, in other words. And whilst I was able to offer a second property to the lender to take a charge over that had no mortgage on it, in fact, if I did have a mortgage on it, this still may have been a possibility. However, the loan to value after the additional bridging loan was in place on the on the property with the mortgage on would have had to be within the lender's acceptable limits. And of course, permission from the existing lender would have also been required. So it's a little bit complex in that sense. But as I mentioned, I was able to keep my cash input down to a minimum for this project. And so I was able to leverage somebody else's money, allowing me to do more with less of my own funds. And this is not necessarily a beginner financing strategy, so do take the time to fully understand all that's involved if you're thinking of undertaking a similar undertaking yourself. Another application of bridging finance that I really like is to complement what I call the BRR strategy. And BRR stands for Buy, Refurbish and Refinance, and it's a personal favourite of mine. 
And what this means is we buy a property using bridging finance to keep our personal cash input down. Then we undertake improvement works to increase the property's value before exiting the bridging loan by taking out a buy-to-let mortgage based on a higher revaluation, of course, after the works have been completed. The new buy-to-let mortgage will be based on the valuation after the works have been completed, as I mentioned, and so it will be a higher value. That remortgage will allow the bridging loan to be repaid, along with some or all of the, the costs of undertaking the works, and in certain extreme cases, also provide additional cash back in our pocket for further investment as well. In addition, we also have an extra property in our portfolio to generate an income and growing value over time. So it's a pretty neat strategy. You can probably see why I like it. The BRR strategy allows us to recycle our personal cash funds to enable us to buy more properties using the same starting investment fund. Now, I normally budget on leaving in around 10 to 15% of the property revaluation in each deal. And so I, I then seek to top up the difference through savings and, and rental profits, ready to go again the, the next time around. And if I do manage to fully recycle my deposit on remortgaging, then so much the better, as I can start my next project straight away, of course. And that uh, 10 to 15% is equivalent to a deposit. So normally with buy-to-let lending, uh, standard buy-to-let lending, you normally need to put in something like 25% deposit. So 10 to 15% instead of 25% probably sounds quite appealing. Of course, you don't, know, you don't have to do this purely with a bridging loan to, to follow this BRR strategy. We could apply the same logic when buying in cash as well. And the key is to add value through improvement works before refinancing onto the long-term financing project, uh, sorry, product, such as a buy-to-let mortgage. Uh, and indeed to release some of, the, uh, some of the, or even all of our cash funds to go again. Now, here's a, an example of a project um, similar to, to one I've done recently, and it's a, it's a project in Lincolnshire, and uh, I paid £142,000 for it, spent around about £12,000 in total, uh, additional £8,000 in finance fees, and so, you know, deposit and all the costs amounted to around about £62,000 that I had to put into that particular project. So, you can see 142,000 plus uh, 12 would have been about 150 odd thousand pounds I would have needed to find. So 62,000 was all I needed to find. After works, I was able to get a buy to let mortgage based on a revaluation uh, at 195,000 pounds. And that meant I had a new loan of 146,000 pound odd, meaning cash left in of just under 16,000 pounds. I know it's a lot of figures to take in, but it's equivalent to 8% of the property's uh, revaluation which compares favourably, as I mentioned, to a 25% deposit on a buy-to-let mortgage if I'd have bought that same property in a done-up condition instead. And that's one of the reasons I think you'll, uh, you'll understand why I like the BRR strategy. It allows me to uh, leave less of my money tied up in a transaction. And it allows me to, uh, to leverage bridging finance and buy-to-let mortgages in order to make my cash you know, go further. So in this example, I can stretch the same deposit funds by around about 300% using this approach and of course as I say I'll top it up using uh, savings and uh, rental profits and, and then can go again so it's a great way to accelerate your your growth if that's what you want to do with property and when you add this uh, relative when, when you add sorry the relative merits of speed into the process I think you would agree that there are several practical applications of bridging finance as well that we can bring to bear in our property business okay so I really wanted to, to this week to pause and, and recap on, on some of these institutional financing methods, including cash, if you like, that we've covered so far, and apply some real-life practical application. 
uh, I hope you found some of those examples quite helpful. Uh, Try to bring into it as much personal experience as possibly could. And, uh, you know, that hopefully will give you some ideas if you didn't have them already. And we'll we'll now return back to the series and we'll continue the theme of alternative financing methods in in property over the coming weeks as we bring in more guests and look at uh, how we can extract the practical application as we go as well. (laughs) So as ever, uh, please feel free to email me personally if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. The email address podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I always pick that up personally. And of course, if you want to see the show notes, they're all written up and they're going to be at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But now though, all that remains once again is to say thank you very much for listening to me again this week on the Property Voice podcast. And uh, until next time, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.